Well, that was a big passage that Kylie uh, read to us this morning, but it basically breaks down into three movements. Uh, in the first movement, a man named Sanballat with his sidekick Tobiah challenged the people of Israel about the rebuilding effort with a series of questions that are designed to be insulting to the people and get them discouraged about what they've begun. In the second movement, the enemy coalesces together to try to discourage the people of Israel. And three speeches are unloaded by the Israelites and their enemies. All of the speeches from all of the groups basically say, we should stop building. This is too hard. We should go back to the way life was before. And in the third movement, it's filled with weapons and guards and uh, warning systems in case an, uh, the event of an attack occurs. It's filled with uh, trowels in one hand and swords in the other hand. But in all three movements, God is the answer to the problem. In the first movement, you might have noticed that Nehemiah responds to the ridicule of the people with prayer. Uh, he says, hear us, O our God. So he turns to God as the answer in the first movement. In the second movement, when the speeches that are designed to dissuade people from doing what God has asked them to do land upon the people of Israel, Nehemiah gives a speech of his own, and he tells the people at the center of his speech, remember the Lord. So he knows that, that, that God is the answer. They need to be thinking about the Lord in the midst of those discouraging thoughts. And then even in the last movement that's filled with weaponry and preparation for battle, in the midst of it, Nehemiah gives another speech, and in the middle of that speech, he says, our God will fight for us. So in all three episodes, to Nehemiah, God is the solution. God is the answer. This opposition has come into their lives. They've gotten off to a great start. They're about to experience an incredible breakthrough of God's spirit. They're going to experience renewal if they keep pushing forward in it. They've received the burden. They know that God has provided for it. They are engaged in the work that God has called them to, but this moment, this crucial moment, I think it's the moment that many of us are living in even right now. God has put on our heart the desire to start afresh. God is driving us towards a period of renewal. He wants us to experience his presence in our lives. We've got the burden. We know we've got the resources. We've begun Maybe we've started reinvigorating our marriage. Maybe we've begun restarting and refiring our devotional life. Maybe we've made choices to get our minds off of that which is continually negative and begin thinking about what God is doing here on earth during this season in time. Maybe we've begun all of these things, but as we've begun them, the opposition inevitably comes. And what I want you to know today is that God stands with us. He renews his people by standing with them against the opposition that will most certainly come into our lives. And just as Nehemiah served the people, God served the people through Nehemiah. And I think that God 
in this passage, wanted his people to re-hear his voice, to re-focus upon him, and to re-engage with him against the enemy. And I think the Lord wants to do all three of those things in our lives as well. He wants us to re-hear him almost every day of our lives, re-focus upon him every day of our lives, and re-engage in the fight with him, partnering with him here on earth every day of our lives. So let's think about those three things today from these three movements in this text. The first thing that I want us to consider, I said it already, is that we must rehear God's voice if we're going to endure. We need to rehear God's voice if we're going to endure. Now, where I get this is from the attacks that were brought against the people of Israel. Like I said, and like we read, this man Sanballat comes in and he asks a series of five questions about the Israelite people. Not even really to the Israelite people, but to his own people. But these questions inside this speech from Sanballat were designed to penetrate into Jerusalem and get the people of Jerusalem discouraged about their own situation. Now this guy Sanballat, we've already seen him before. If you were here for the teaching on Nehemiah chapter 2, or you listen to that online, you know that Sanballat appeared at the beginning of the episode when Nehemiah came to Jerusalem in the first place. Sanballat saw that a man had come from afar to seek the welfare of the people of Israel, and it says in Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 10 that he was greatly displeased about this. You see, Sanballat had some skin in the game. He liked the status quo. He was in a position of power and authority over the people of Israel. And in that authoritative place, he liked the people of Israel, God's people, living in subservience to him. At the end of Nehemiah chapter 2, when the people of Israel strengthened their hands to work, Sanballat again emerged and tried to rebuke the people for rebuilding the wall, starting this effort. And you might remember what Nehemiah said to him in Nehemiah 2, verse 20. He said, you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Nehemiah would not entertain Sanballat's voice at all. But now Sanballat appears again with these five questions. And I think these five questions, to me, they have always stood out as five questions the enemy uses to try to challenge us today. In the first question, Sambalit said, if you look in your Bible there in verse 2, what are these feeble Jews doing? What was that question designed to raise up in the heart of God's people? It was designed to create in them this spirit that thought, you know what, I am weak. I don't have strength. What am I even doing here? I don't have the ability to get this renewal effort accomplished. His second question was, will they restore it for themselves? Will they restore the city for themselves? I think this was Sanballat's way of saying, this is such a massive project. What do they really have? Just this collection of families that are gonna have like a family picnic and rebuild this city. This is something that construction people do, not families around the wall of Jerusalem. This is too big of a project. And I think oftentimes as God's people, we feel that way in our lives. Man, I need renewal. There's an area in my life that is in disrepair. And we begin feeling as we embark on the journey of seeing those things healed and restored that it's too big for us. We can't possibly accomplish it. 
His third question was, will they sacrifice? You know what this was? This was mockery of their worship. Another way of saying this would be to say something like, you think you're going to pray the wall up? You think that's going to work? God gave you a sacrificial system and he gave you worship and he gave you prayer and you think that's gonna get the job done and oftentimes when we're crying out to God in a place of desperation, we know we need his renewal, the enemy will whisper in our ear, you think that's gonna work? The fourth question was, will they finish it up in a day? That question was designed to ridicule them for the lack of speed with which they were going to rebuild the wall. Now, Sambalit didn't know how quickly they were going to rebuild the wall. It would take 52 days for that wall to get built. But isn't that often the way the enemy speaks to us? Why is this taking so long in your life? The slow process of growth. Why does it take forever? And his final question was, will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that. This was his way of mocking them for the materials at their disposal to get the job done. And the enemy loves to do this one. When we're feeling like, well, God, what has God given me for renewal? He gave me the Bible. He gave me prayer. He gave me fellowship with other Christians. And we begin feeling like, surely those aren't the things that I need. Surely those materials can't truly get the job done. It's got to be something else. And after all these questions, Tobiah, Sambalit's friend, servant, rolls in and says in verse 3, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their wall. This is like the height of maturity, don't you think? <laughs> it's like I almost imagine Tobiah sneaking around Nehemiah trying to pants him or something, and it's just so <laughs> juvenile. Now, if any of these questions, if any of these statements were true or the final word, they would not have had to say these words. They could have just kicked back and let the project fail. But because they were terrified of the progress of God's people, they felt they had to sow seeds of doubt into the Israelite minds. Perhaps then the momentum would stop. Perhaps then Sanballat and Tobiah could continue on in the status quo. And I think this is important for us to understand. That the verbal assaults that are brought against us, sometimes even from within our own minds, are often, listen to me now, they are often a response to progress. They're often a response to God working and God moving in our lives. There's action, there's movement, there's change, there's transformation, and it's then that the enemy begins to freak out. The enemy of our souls hates when we have momentum towards renewal, and it's then that the lies and the challenges are the strongest. So what did Nehemiah do? Well, Nehemiah would have none of it. You know, we already read it there, but he just reached out to God in prayer, and I think he prayed a prayer that a lot of us cannot imagine praying. I mean, Jesus told us to pray for our enemies, but I don't think any of us think like this, because he prays a lot of crazy stuff. He says in verse four, he says he wants them to be plundered and turned into captives. Like, hey, what are you praying for right now, Nehemiah? Well, I got these neighbors. <laughs> 
He prayed that their taunt would turn back on their own heads. He prayed that God, verse 5, would not cover their guilt and that they'd be blotted out from his sight. Okay. If anything, this was an honest prayer. Now he's feeling the sense that he's having. It's an honest prayer. But I think that he's praying this way because what he's defending is not just his own honor and kingdom, but the honor and kingdom of God. These are cries, in a sense, against injustice. And he's like, God, you see this injustice. This is not right. You need to deal with it. Now, there's a lot of people in our society that can't imagine a God that would execute justice, but there's a lot of people in a lot of other societies in the world that can't imagine a God that wouldn't execute justice. And Nehemiah, he just says, God, you have to take care of this. I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. I'm entrusting you with all of this. I'm giving it to you, and the rest is up to you. But I think that his response serves as an excellent example for all of us. Nehemiah wasn't going to hear those words. Instead, he wants God to hear him. And I think in effect, as he prays, he is getting from God what he needs. He is hearing God. I mean, if you think about it, what Sambalit and Tobias said could all be used in a way to help the people of Israel rehear the Lord's voice. I mean, take, for instance, those moments where you feel weak. Do you ever feel weak? I know for me in my devotional life, I get done reading the Bible, and then I'll go like on a little prayer walk. And it's, it's comical to me how often my prayer walk begins with, God, I feel so weak right now. I don't know if it's because it's early in the morning or what, but I just generally have that sense. There's stuff in front of me. There's there's burdens, decisions, responsibilities. God, I feel weak for those things, and I need your strength. But as you're feeling that weakness, could it be that you need to rehear God's voice? 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, for instance, tells us that Christ's power is made perfect in our weakness. It's almost like you could say to Sanballat, like, I know. <laughs> I know I'm weak but Christ is powerful in me. Or there might be times where you feel like the repairs that need to be made in your life or in your church are just too massive. They're too big. That's what he said to them. Like, you think you're gonna do that project? You think you're gonna get that done? You think you're gonna rebuild that city? But perhaps it's in those moments that we need to rehear Jesus's voice saying, but all things are possible with me. Mark 10, verse 27. Perhaps at times you might feel like your public or your private worship is a waste of time. Like, man, I could have slept in longer. Why did I do this? Or I could have been prepping for the football game. Why did I go to church? Why did I waste my time in that kind of way? But Jesus, in those moments, might want you to rehear his voice from John 15, verse 5, where he said, if you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. So spend time abiding in me. Or the times that you feel that progress is coming too slowly. Christ might want to remind you of 2 Corinthians 4, 16 in that moment, that though the outward person perishes, the inner person is being renewed day by day. 
Every day the Lord is working in you. He's changing you slowly but surely into Christ's image. And when you feel like the materials of prayer and the Bible and Christian fellowship are weak or unreliable, they don't really get the job done, Christ wants you to know that he's made access to God for you, that he is the word the word speaks about, and that where two or more gather together, there he is in the midst. When those words come against us, we need to rehear God's voice. So often, when the whispers within begin to tell you that God's best will never unfold in your life, that you're too weak and the problems are too big, you've got to rehear God. But the second thing that I want you to see from the second movement here is that not only do we need to rehear God when the opposition comes, but God also helps us with opposition by helping us, secondly, to refocus on him. Uh, Nehemiah responded to everything with prayer, but after he prayed, they got their momentum back. Uh, It says in verse 6, if you have your Bible open still, it says, so we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. To me, that is one of the more beautiful verses in the book of Nehemiah, but it's also one of the more dangerous verses in the book of Nehemiah. Beautiful because they had a mind to work, but dangerous because they were halfway up, and halfway is a dangerous place in life. It's dangerous because I think it's the halfway mark of many of our pursuits in Christ that discouragement is often its sharpest, that we're most susceptible to giving up. Because when you've come halfway, halfway to seeing a marriage restored, halfway to getting your devotional life back, halfway into launching a new ministry, halfway into a new career the Lord's leading you into, half, when you're halfway into these things, you've come so far, you've got to go far to get halfway, but you still have so far to go. And when you become conscious of that, the discouragement can begin to settle in. If you've ever run up like a mountain peak, you've had this experience. At the bottom of the hill, you've got all this energy and excitement, like I'm going to do something dope today. I'm going to run up this thing. And when you get to the top, you feel like Rocky, you know, you put your hands up like I could do anything. I, I made it up. I summited this mountain. But when you're halfway up, you're like, I feel like I've been at this forever. And you look up and you're like, I got so far to go, and you begin to get discouraged. And it was at that moment that Israel's enemies came in in a concerted effort. On every side, it says, in verse 7 and 8, north, south, east, and west. That's what it means when it says that Sambalit and Tobiah, the Arabs, Ammonites, Ashdodites, plotted together to come and fight against God's people. From all sides surrounding Jerusalem, they came in that moment. And their goal, notice it in verse 8, it says their goal was to cause confusion in Jerusalem. And that's exactly what happened. Confusion broke out in Jerusalem with three speeches from three different groups of people. In the first speech, after Nehemiah prayed and set a guard, Some of the people in Judah became so discouraged that look at verse 9 and 10. They said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. 
there is too much rubble by ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. This is like just that feeling of like, dude, we're trying. We're working so hard, Nehemiah. This is difficult, man. And the rubble is so intense. You're telling us to like rebuild this section and we got rocks that are just like buried with earth and weeds and they're just embedded in there. This is a really difficult task. It's too much rubble. We're too fatigued. We're too tired. That was speech number one. In the second speech, the enemy started speaking and people latched on to their words. Look at verse 11. The enemy said, they will not know or see it till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. You know what this was? This was like a threat of guerrilla warfare. You're just gonna be working on the wall and we're gonna come and we're gonna pick you off one by one. You don't know when we're coming, how we're coming, where we're coming, but we're coming. And then in the third speech, some of the Jews of the area around Jerusalem, Israelite people who lived in the suburbs of Jerusalem, they came to Nehemiah, and they were very persistent. Nehemiah says they came 10 times. He's like counting. He's like, that's one, that's two, that's three. I can't believe you people saying the same thing. And this is what they said in verse 12. They said, you must return to us. In other words, they wanted Nehemiah and the workers to get off the wall to stop endangering themselves. This is crazy what you guys are doing. Just go back to the way it was. It wasn't that bad. And what would Nehemiah do in response to those three speeches? Well, the first thing he did is it says in verse 13 that he stationed some people with weapons in the open spaces. I think he did this so that everybody could see, like, hey, we're doing stuff. We're, We're defending the visible gaps in the wall. But the important thing of this second movement is that Nehemiah gave a speech of his own. It's like, okay, you got your speeches, I got mine. And this is the speech that Nehemiah gave. It's in verse 14, if you look at it in your Bibles. He said to everyone, nobles, officials, all the people, he said, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So like real brave heart kind of moment for Nehemiah. You know, he's like, what, what are you guys about? You need to, first of all, stop being afraid of these threats of guerrilla warfare. Don't be afraid of them. And this whole thing about your strength not being sufficient and the rubble being too big, remember the Lord. He's great and awesome. And then finally, this last pressure to quit and go home. Nehemiah said, don't quit and go home, but fight for your homes. Fight for your families. Nehemiah was the guy who was willing to put God into the equation. Nobody else was thinking about God, but Nehemiah says, remember the Lord. Think about God. All the people, they'd gotten their eyes off of the Lord and onto the impossibility of the work or the weakness of their own abilities. But Nehemiah says, remember the Lord, great and awesome. And it's so beautiful when God sends a word or a messenger like this into our lives. You know, I love the story of David versus Goliath. It's one of the most famous stories in the Bible and in all of literature. 
But in that story, Goliath comes out and challenges the armies of Israel for 40 days. 40 is the number of complete testing in the Bible, complete judgment in the Bible. And for 40 days, none of the men in Israel felt inclined to enter into hand-to-hand combat, representative warfare against this giant of a man. Until after the 40 days, David shows up as a little teenager. He's there to deliver a care package to his three oldest brothers who are in the battle or on the front, I should say. And as he's delivering this care package, he hears Goliath shouting from down in the valley of Elah. And he hears Goliath taunting the people of Israel, mocking the people of Israel. And David responds. He starts saying to people in the camp, who is this Philistine? that is defying, listen to this, the armies of the living God. No one else had been thinking God's alive. No one else had been talking about the living God. No one else had been comparing Goliath to the living God. They were comparing Goliath to themselves. And in comparison to themselves, yeah, Goliath was a giant. But in comparison to the Lord, who is great and awesome, the living God, Goliath was just another teeny feature of God's created order. And David knew this. And because he believed in God, history was changed in that moment for the Israelite people. You see, often we experience the temptation to get our eyes off of God and onto something else. We become overwhelmed by limited resources or like they did, veiled threats or the invitation to just give up. But we must put ourselves in positions to be continually reminded of God. We should choose environments that will come alongside us and bolster our faith, encouraging us not to fear and exhorting us to engage in the fight. And I'm of the opinion that we need thousands of reminders and voices that say, remember the Lord. I think we need that constantly because as the hymn says, our hearts are prone to wander. But God is gracious with us and he gives us those thousands of reminders. He gives us the communion table so that every time we eat the bread or drink from the cup, we remember his body that was broken for us and his blood that was shed for us. He gives us his word, and I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a lot of it. He gives us his word so that when we think about it, meditate upon it, not just read through it quickly or skim through it, but think about it, pray on it, we'll remember who he is and what he says about us. He gives us one another as reminders of who God is, even depositing the gifts of his spirit into other believers around you so that they might speak into your life, reminding you of who the Lord is. He gives us pastors and other messengers to repoint us to the same old message of the cross over and over again. And he even puts his spirit inside of us individually to awaken our conscience and if we'll listen, to remind us all day long of him. In thousands of moments and minutes, God works to help us refocus on him. And I think it's good for us to avail ourselves of his methods. You see, some of you guys right now, you are in that halfway up place that I talked about earlier. 
You've tackled the restoration of your marriage. You've launched into a new ministry venture for Jesus. You're trudging through parenting teenagers, or you're a teenager trudging through your parents trying to parent teenagers. You've set out to kick some habit or vice in your life. You've decided to read the news less. You've kick-started a morning devotional time with God. You've started setting aside a day each week for worship and rest. You've set out to become a reader. You've begun to be generous. Don't give in to the voices that tell you it cannot or should not be done and that you should go back to the way things used to be. Don't listen to those speeches. Instead, listen to the better speech that tells you not to fear, to remember God, and to fight. All right, but let's think about one last way before I let you go home, that God helps us face opposition. You know, the first thing I told you is that he wants us to rehear him, and then he wants us to refocus on him. But in this last third movement of the story, God helps us re-engage along with him. He helps us re-engage along with him. Let me explain to you what I mean. This, this last movement of the story, to me, this is the part of the book of Nehemiah where Nehemiah becomes Nehemiah. Like, he becomes the guy that we know in this last section. Because it's in this last section where they're feeling threatened that Nehemiah just gets all organized. He puts weapons in everybody's hands along with tools in everybody's hands. And he's like, look, we're not going to stop working we're not going to go home. We're not even going to take off our clothes so we're ready for battle. We're not even going to wear our pajamas at night because we want to be ready to fight at any moment that we need to fight. We're going to stay this way. It's going to be a period of sacrifice until we break through into getting this job accomplished. It's just a beautiful passage of Scripture, and it's kind of what we think of when we think about who Nehemiah was. And in the passage... Lots of the weapons of their time were mentioned. You have talk of spears and shields and bows and coats of mail. Nehemiah even organized this advanced warning system through trumpets. If a trumpet blasted on one part of the wall, then everyone else knew an attack is coming there. We need to run to that area to help defend that portion of the wall and help the people that are in that place. Over a dozen times in this passage, Nehemiah met, mentioned their weapons, and they were ready to use them, like I said. You know, they had a watch at all times. They were sleeping there on the wall at night. They were ready. But nestled in the midst of this whole movement, this whole last episode, all this strategy, all this preparation for war, Nehemiah gives another speech. Right after he announces the trumpet blast system, he says in verse 20, look at the verse there in your Bibles, he told everyone, he said, our God will fight for us. Our God will fight for us. Now you'd be forgiven if you were a little confused by that statement from Nehemiah. After amassing a bunch of weapons, after strategically spacing the people, after setting a guard, after organizing shifts, Nehemiah said, God will do the fighting. Seems like Nehemiah thought that he and the people would do the fighting. 
But he says, no, God will do the fighting. In Nehemiah's mind, who would do the fighting? Would, would God do the fighting? Yes, he says it. But would the people do the fighting? Yes, that's why he gave them weapons. So did that mean that he thought that God would not do the fighting? No. He thought both were true. That's really the story of Nehemiah. Nehemiah's whole story is one of God's sovereignty interplaying with human responsibility. God would do the fighting, but so would the people. And that's how Nehemiah felt. That's how Nehemiah thought. That was his grid with which he looked at the world. I didn't mention this back in Nehemiah chapter 2, but when Nehemiah came into town from Persia, he had a military escort that was protecting him the whole journey. And the reason that's significant is because Ezra, the priest, who was a contemporary of Nehemiah, had made that same journey just a few years earlier. And when Ezra made that journey, the king offered a military escort. But Ezra, in his book, he says, you know, I've just been telling everybody over and over again that God would protect us, that God was on our side, that God would defend us. So when the king said, hey, yo, you want a military ex ex uh, uh, escort, I felt, you know, weird about that, so I, I declined it because I wanted everybody to know that God would protect us. And God did protect Ezra. He brought them all the way there. They didn't even lose one nickel on that dangerous journey. But when Nehemiah made the same journey, he thought, yeah, God will protect us with the military escort. <laughs> so he accepted that very same offer. This is a beautiful thing, a difference between these two men. Nehemiah thought, God fights, but so do the people. God will flex, but so must we. And this is often God's way. You know, in the book of Isaiah, there's this episode where the king, Hezekiah, he's told that he's about to die. The illness that's overcome him is going to take his life. And he cries out to God. And God answers his prayer with the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah announces to him, you're going to live, you're going to get 15 more years of your life. God's going to heal you. And then Isaiah tells Hezekiah to take some medicine. So who healed Hezekiah? God or the medicine? Yes. <laughs> then in the New Testament, there's this other story where Paul is on a ship in the middle of the Mediterranean. Their storm comes around them. They're despairing of their lives. And God promises to Paul, he says, not even one person on this ship is going to die. Every single person is going to make it. Every single person is going to live. Then as time passes, some of the sailors think to themselves, man, we got to get out of here. And they start cutting off the lifeboats so they can get in them and escape from the boat. And Paul, in a moment, in a flash, he tells the captain of the ship, he says, if these sailors go free, not one of us on this boat will live. So who saved everybody, God or the sailors? Both. Yes. You see, there are times that we need to embrace this perspective, that God will fight for us, but that we must fight along with him. 
We're not alone in the fight. It is God's fight. He gives us the gifting and the energy and the power and the endurance to fight. The fight is all his. At the end of the day, you have to say, our God fought for us, but we're right there with him. And even though the credit is all his, we have to understand, does God fight or do we? Yes. But for what? What do we fight for? What is God asking us to join with him in? What is God fighting for that we are also fighting along with him for? Tons of things. Think about the fight for your own sanctification and spiritual growth and transformation. God is fighting for that, but you should too. For spiritual growth, for healthy marriages, for growing churches, for strong families, for gospel-oriented friendships. All of these things God is fighting for, but we must be fighting for them as well. For our finances, for college degrees, for Sabbath rhythms, for kindness and love and generosity to flow from our lives, for service and sacrifice, for good sermons, for good laughter, for theological understanding, for victory over addiction, for healing in a relationship, for forgiving someone else. God is fighting for these things, but he's saying, I want you to fight with me. At the end of the day, you'll say, God fought for me, but he's wanting you to be engaged in the fight. He's wanting to fight through you. So just as Nehemiah invited the people to re-engage along with God, to be part of God's work and war, so we are invited to re-engage along with God. Now, someone asked me recently, they said, when is it time in the Christian life to stop receiving and start giving out? You know, and the question was kind of framed like, you know, a newer believer, they're, they're kind of like in that receiving mode, they're getting restored and refreshed, and then when does the time come where they say like, okay, cool, I've received, and now it's time to give? My answer to that question is that it's never time to stop receiving. Even as you're giving, you should be receiving from the Lord. It's the Lord fighting through you. Even while giving out, you should be conscious of Philippians 2.13, that it is God that is working in you and through you for his purposes. God fighting for you. Now, when Jesus came along to wrap this up, he was the perfect mixture of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. A lot of times we get this messed up a little bit, but Jesus embodied this perfectly. You know, first of all, he was divine. So divine responsibility, he took responsibility for us. Divine sovereignty, he was sovereign over us. He said, I'm going to save them. But when he came, he became one of us the son of man, to fulfill the perfect law that we could not fulfill. And like Nehemiah, when Jesus came, he did some of the thing, same things that Nehemiah did, only better. He didn't believe the lies and the attacks or the assaults of the enemy. He battled through temptation and pressures and discouragement. He picked up his own weapons, not spears and swords, but the unorthodox weapon of the cross, a weapon that the Romans were using to kill him, but that he was using to kill sin. He defeated it so that we could be brought home to God. 
And he did all of these things so that what Nehemiah said would truly come to pass. Our God will fight for us. Jesus Christ came and fought for us.